Well, Paul is on his way to Rome. You might like to turn to page 908 of the Pew Bible and we'll follow along together. Acts chapter 27, page 908. Can I ask you to please notice that the author is there along too for the ride? Uh, The author is Luke, and this is one of the we passages in Luke's book of Acts. One of those passages that shows us that Luke was there with Paul on the journey. And the other friend that they have with them is Aristarchus from Thessalonica, uh, a long-term traveling companion of Paul's. Uh, We also meet Julius, a centurion. Now, it's special and important that he belongs to the imperial regiment, Caesar's own troops. We'll see that he makes the decisions on this journey. He's the boss. He carries more authority even than the captain and the owner of the ships on which they sail. So uh, Paul and Luke and Aristarchus have boarded an Egyptian grain ship, one from the city of Alexandria. Its primary purpose was to supply wheat and other grain to Italy. Egypt was the bread bowl of the ancient world, and the grain trade was lucrative. In fact, the political stability of Rome depended upon a steady supply of Egyptian grain. And the ship would have been quite big with a mainsail and a foresail and capable of carrying several hundred people. It also would have had at least one rowboat with it, a smaller craft to act as tender or lifeboat or pilot boat. In the ancient world, uh, you kept off the Mediterranean Sea during winter because of its storms. It's already after the Day of Atonement, which has been calculated to have been the 5th of October in the year 59 AD. All sailing had to cease by law by the beginning of November. These ancient ships, as big as they were, were not capable of handling the fierce storms of the Mediterranean winter. Since the harbour was unsuitable for wintering, it was 
Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you all the lives of those who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. They then hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. Uh, In the ancient world, the punishment for a jailer or a soldier letting a prisoner escape was that they themselves lost their lives. So these soldiers are planning to kill the prisoners because they're expecting that if any of them escaped, they'd be executed for it. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life, 
and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those that could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. We find out in the very next verse that the island they've run aground on is called Malta. Well, the plot turns on Paul's analysis of their predicament in verse 10. Uh, There is the briefest of windows. To go or not to go? What are we going to do? Shall we leave or stay? Let's read those verses again. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. Men, I can see. What did Paul mean by, I can see? Unlike Peter and James and John, Paul never was a fisherman, but he is an experienced traveler, having at least 11 ocean voyages under his belt before this one, including one previous shipwreck that left him floating in the Mediterranean for 24 hours. So he does know what he's talking about. But this is surely more than just the voice of experience here. Paul is speaking prophetically, which is to say he's speaking God's wisdom into this situation. Now, prophecy may contain an element of foresight or future telling, but it's not simply that. With respect to Paul's words here, his words don't actually come true fully, because there will be no loss of human life by God's grace. As a forecast, Paul's words here are only partially fulfilled. But as a prophecy, it does what prophecy does, which is to bring God's wisdom, his voice, to bear in a situation. Paul's warning, which Luke has uh, presumably abbreviated, implies that the right thing to do is to moor the ship here in Fair Havens for the winter with the people spending the next three months in the nearby town of Lycia. Paul's word, therefore, is no go. We must stay where we are. But to this Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom, we are given immediately a contrast. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. Well, uh, if Paul walks by faith, Julius the centurion walks by sight. Julius is presented to us as an intelligent, kind, and caring man. He's a good bloke. But as for wisdom, all he has is the best that the world can give, worldly wisdom. And here is Julius's reasoning. Firstly, both the captain of the boat and the owner of the vessel consider fair havens to be unsuitable to winter in. Presumably, it was too exposed to the wind and the seas. Secondly, undoubtedly, there are political and economic imperatives Getting grain to Rome is Julius's primary responsibility. That's his job. And the ship's owner, he has a business to run. Spending three months doing nothing on the island of Crete is going to put a serious dent in his bottom line. Thirdly, Julius consults widely. Very democratic of him. 
Julius consults widely and finds that the majority want to go. Naturally, if you're sitting at an airport, and uh, you know, you're sitting in an airport somewhere remote, a long way from home, and you hear over the PA that your flight departure time has been amended by three months, you'd be upset too. Suddenly, 276 people are not getting to Rome for Christmas. Not that Christmas existed back then. But fourthly, there is an alternate plan. They come up with a different plan. Let's just hop along the coast a bit to Phoenix and see how things go from there. That's a better place to winter, and it's a more suitable harbor if we, if we really feel there that we can't continue. So Julius's decision seems eminently sensible. We can so sympathize with him. Indeed, we recognize ourselves in him. Going seems like the rational thing to do. But, as we can see clearly from our God's eye view of things, what he's actually done is reject the word of a prophet. He's justified himself in casting aside God's wisdom. We'll come back to this. The next 32 verses are just simply the outworking of this decision. You know, their decision to go. The next 32 verses are just simply how the disaster unfolds. And it is a disaster. The word disaster being an ancient nautical term, literally meaning in Latin, no stars. It means there are no stars. We cannot navigate. We have no idea which way we are, which way we're pointing where we are. And for something like two weeks, it's a disaster. The clouds are so dense that there's no stars by night, no position of the sun by day. They have no idea where they are. And as with such many such storm stories, such as the story of Jonah, surviving the storm now means chucking everything overboard. First, much of the cargo, the luggage, then the tackle, a desperate attempt to lighten the boat to prevent baptism, which is another ancient nautical term meaning when a boat gets swamped to the point of no return. Later on, the lifeboat is set adrift. Then four of the ship's anchors are abandoned before the ship itself is abandoned to its destruction by the pounding surf on the sandbar on which it had come aground. Everything is lost except for the damp clothes in which they each stand. But with respect to their lives, not a hair lost from any of their heads. No injuries. No casualties, no fatalities, and that, in every sense of the word, is a miracle. But in order for them to survive, they had to sacrifice everything. Along the way, Paul gets to say, I told you so. Verse 21. Whilst we might feel it better unsaid, and perhaps think Paul a bit lacking in subtlety and lacking in social skills for making that point, As ever, Paul is actually motivated by concern for others. He knows that he has an authority that his shipmates don't yet fully understand. And Paul knows that Jesus is Lord over the wind and the storms and the waves. They are under Christ's control. Paul also knows that Jesus has a plan for his life that has been revealed to him before and now confirmed by the word of an angel that he will get to stand before Caesar. God will fulfill the plans he has for Paul, just as he will for me and also for you. So Paul prophesies again. God's will 
is that not only will Paul make it out of this mess, but likewise, all by the sheer grace of God, everyone's going to survive, all who travel with him. And this is sheer grace because they all deserve to die. They've all been fully forewarned by God's representative, and they rejected God's wisdom for their own wisdom. But yet again, we have a second prophecy and a second rebellion to this prophecy. In verses 30 to 32, some sailors come up with their alternate plan of salvation. They're going to escape from this doomed ship and make their own way using the lifeboat, avoiding the peril they fear, which is submerged rocks. In response to this plot, Paul says something to Julius that we do not expect him to say. We might expect him to say, perhaps, unless these men stay with the ship, they cannot survive. We might have expected him to say that, but that's not what Paul says. What Paul says is, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot survive. Julius comes to decision point. In other words, if you don't act now to shut down this rebellion to God's will, you will lose your own life. This is your second chance, Julius. Well, Julius is repentant. Julius and the soldiers with him act speedily to obey Paul. They now understand that Paul, as Christ's ambassador, has an authority that is qualitatively different to any other authority they've encountered before. Now, as ever, Paul is acutely self-conscious in this role of being Christ's ambassador. He knows that he's on display. He knows he's on display before Julius, before the soldiers, before the crew of the ship, before his fellow passengers, before his fellow prisoners, before his fellow Christians, Luke, Aristarchus. And now through this book, he's on display before us. So what can we learn from how Paul conducts himself? What can we learn from his witness? Well, we already know that Paul speaks authoritatively as Christ's representative. So we will do well not to reject his teaching. We too, like the majority in this story, we too have rejected God and his rightful rule over our lives. We've rejected his wisdom, and that is sin. And the wages of sin is death. But by the sheer grace of God... Jesus took the punishment for us on the cross. So when we look to him, we are forgiven. This is the plan. There is no other alternate plan for salvation. There isn't one. But through this plan, God has promised to get us each home. But in response to this sheer grace, we sacrifice everything we have. We will not stand on that distant shore except that we lose everything. Well, perhaps that's all a little bit obvious. What else can we learn from Paul's witness in this story? Well, I think that part of Paul's witness to the wisdom of God is actually just his patience. Now, the early church valued patience actually is the highest of virtues. The Romans, they didn't value patience at all. It wasn't a virtue to them. Patience was something that you had if you had to have it. Otherwise, if you didn't have to have it, don't have it. Slaves had to be patient. They had to have patience. So did poor, powerless, pitiful people. 
they are the kind of folk who needed patience. But the rich and the powerful, they don't have patience because successful people get what they want when they want it. Patience is for pitiful people. But actually, as Christians, we know that God is patient. He is patient with us. And actually, the first thing that Paul says about love is that love is patient. And Paul can see it way back there in verse 10. In that situation, the predicament that, that they're in, all it requires is patience. They must wait where they are. And actually, it's obvious, really. It's obvious to you. It's obvious to me. When you take money out of it, when you take inconvenience out of it, when you take fear of not being in control out of it, it's completely transparently obvious to everyone. The right thing to do is to be patient and wait. People are more important than profits. People are more important than grain. Well, patience is the sacrifice of time. So Paul's word of advice was simply this. Sacrifice your time or sacrifice everything. In contrast, although they were able to justify their decision to go, the real problem of Julius and his friends was their impatience. And that's a fundamental human problem. Adam and Eve were impatient for wisdom. They were impatient for the wisdom the tree could give them, wisdom that God had promised them if only they'd just wait for him. And ever since, human beings have created disasters for themselves through impatience. Uh, recently, a uh, Chinese scientist created the first ever genetically engineered baby. That, baby uh, that little baby girl who has been genetically engineered so as to hopefully be immune to HIV will be born next year. But the rest of the world's scientific community has risen up in condemnation of this act. Why? Well, because it is impatient. Because we know that we don't know where this will lead. We don't know what the full ramifications of this will be. We've begun experimenting on the genetic future of humanity using babies without their consent, without knowing where it's all going. And so, in the face of impatient humanity, ever since creation, human beings who do belong to God are willing to wait, are willing to wait for God. Waiting is often the fundamental work of living by faith. For Eve, Adam waited patiently. So did Hannah for Samuel. So did Israel for Moses. And then for David. And finally for Jesus. And so too, now also, we wait patiently for his return. And God's answers to our prayers this amazes me that, that whatever our prayers may be, yes, sure, God's answer may be yes, or it may be no, but it's amazing how often it turns out that God's answer to our prayer is yes, but not yet. Well, from the perspective of psychology today, Julius and his friends were suffering from a condition known as get-homeitis. This condition typically afflicts men, but only, not only men. 
get homeitis is the idea that the closer and closer we get to home, the closer and closer we get to a goal, uh, the, the, the more desperately we actually want to get there and our peripheral vision collapses into all we can see is getting home and we forget to look to the left and to the right and, and we become blind to dangers and problems. Get homeitis. We just want to get there. We just want to make it. Now we're so close. And many lives have been lost through get homeitis. It's a fatal illness occasionally. Aeroplanes that should have diverted to their alternate airport didn't, and all on board died. Drivers who should have stopped, could have stopped, didn't stop, and people died. Uh, get homeitis is a serious affliction that kills people. So this holiday season, please don't be in a hurry. Christians are patient because they trust God. Jesus can look after you, even if there are delays. And if you are a Christian, if, if, if you put your trust in Jesus, then you too are Christ's representative. So in your home, in your workplace, in your school, in your classroom, in the boardroom, at that club, may I suggest to you that you too will have the wisdom of God when you are prepared to be patient in situations where others aren't. And it's a fool who isn't patient with fools, so let's be patient with one another. And the Lord be with you all. Amen.